Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series today, The Ministry of Our Lord. So turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 to 22, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, How to Inherit Eternal Life. There are two things in our present cultural experience that strike me as remarkable and inexplicable. The first is that our culture rarely thinks about eternal life. And, you know, I say that because the average lifespan in Canada is now about 82. And I guess that seems long when you're 25. But but here's an amazing truth. I've met a great many 20-somethings who are quite consciously aware that the end of their lives does loom ahead of them. And yet, the the seeming lack of interest in objectively knowing something about eternal life, well, it seems staggering to me. John Donne was the one who so famously wrote, Never send to know for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. And the bell, if you don't know, is the church bell that rings out at a funeral. Death is never far away from any one of us, and the matter of eternal life should therefore consume our minds and engage us in ceaseless investigation. I mean, how is it possible for men and women to be consumed with sports, with fashion, with possessions, with earthly affairs, which are fleeting, and not be dominated by the endless quest for eternal life? It's remarkable. It's inexplicable. The second thing that's equally remarkable is how easily, when we do think about matters of eternity, how many people in our society are content with answers based on myths. I mean, imagine that we pursue the interests in this life in the same fashion as we examine the matters of eternity. Let's say you're looking to build a secure financial future, or you're even interested in becoming rich. And so we might ask, what's your plan? And to that, the person answers, I'm just doing my best. That's all anyone can ask. Or a person says, you know, in the end, everyone gets rich. Or they say, how dare you say I'm not rich? You have no right to judge me. Well, people don't talk that way about earthly riches because they know that these silly things won't help them reach their goals. Instead, they either talk about what it takes to become a successful entrepreneur or how to build a wealth-building plan or even the psychology of building towards wealth or how to avoid the, the traps of ways of thinking that lead to poverty. I mean, all that kind of stuff. You can go online and find endless helps from people who have been successful or people who have learned the proven secrets from the world's most successful people. So do you see the difference? When it comes to thinking of the things that really matter, we don't put up with silly answers. But when it comes to eternal life, the things that will occupy us for eternity after the first 82 years are gone, to this matter, you know, we easily put up with nonsense. You know, if this is the definition of madness, what is it? If I accomplish nothing other than this, to put into your heart the project worthy of a lifetime, to seek for the things that lead to eternal life, well, I've done my job today. Well, in our study of Jesus in Perea, just before going to Jerusalem to die, Matthew now moves us to a fascinating encounter, one that has puzzled many people. So let's read our text. It's Matthew 19, 16 to 22. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. 
honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Let's see if we can understand this interaction. From Matthew's account, well, Matthew simply calls him a man. But by the end, we read that he had great possessions, and so we know he's rich. But in Luke's account of the same event, Luke mentions that he's a ruler, which must have meant that he's a synagogue ruler. That is, he's a leading man in the local synagogue. We notice that in Matthew, in verse 20, Matthew mentions that he's young, and so given he's a synagogue ruler who's young in age, we have to assume that he's intelligent, he's well thought of, and a man who's reached prominence very quickly. I assume that given his zeal for the law and given his prominence in the synagogue, that he's quite likely a Pharisee. Although it's remarkable that in none of the three accounts, that is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that tell us this story, make mention of that. And I guess the reason might be because in the Gospels, the Pharisees always come out badly. And evidently, we're not to think of this man as either, you know, as opposing Jesus or in some fashion, a man who carries the attitude of many of the Pharisees that we encounter in the New Testament. This man is sincere. I need to stop and reemphasize this point. Thinking about eternal life is not the purview of the elderly. You know, the way that some people think about this, young people don't think about eternity because they're young and their life in this world is well ahead of them. See, I have found that often the opposite is the case. I still remember an encounter I had with a man at a coffee shop. I was sitting at a table with an open laptop and a few books, and I was writing as fast as I could, as I'm often seen to do. And an elderly man, he was well into his 80s, he, he wandered over to my table and asked what I was up to. Well, I told him, and that engaged him in a diatribe about people like me. And I was curious, and I said, sir, do you ever think about dying and what happens then? He said, never. I said, sir, since you've been so bold to approach me, let me say to you, given your age, your death will happen fairly shortly now. Well, he dismissively waved his hand and walked away, and I marveled. No, no, thinking of eternal life is a mindset, not a category of a stage in life. It's been proven over and over again. And Mark, in his account of this incident, tells us the man ran up to Jesus and knelt before him. See, the first, the man's in a hurry, and he, he wants to make sure that no one beats him to Jesus. See, the matter of eternal life is for him, not something that he can simply leave for a later time. It has to be dealt with now. And second, given that he kneels, it would seem he's more than aware of Jesus, and he believes that Jesus does have the answer that he's looking for. Now, let's carefully examine his question. He starts by addressing Jesus as teacher. Both Mark and Luke mention that he calls Jesus good teacher, and in those accounts, Jesus questions him about why he calls him good. You know, in those accounts, Jesus is prodding him, and he's probing him about what it means to be truly good. And by the way, that can only be spoken of when one is speaking of God, says Jesus. Well, in Matthew's account, Matthew mentions that he's interested in knowing what good deed he must do to inherit eternal life. Now, several things do seem to pop out in Matthew's text. You know, the first is that he seems aware of the fact that he does not yet at present possess eternal life. 
And second, he does seem aware that one must possess goodness to gain eternal life. Now, perhaps you're asking, well, how did this conversation really go? I mean, in in Mark and Luke, it seems as if the real question is whether Jesus is good. And in Matthew, it seems the question is whether or not good deeds are necessary for eternal life. I mean, why the difference in the accounts? Well, to answer that, it's actually easier than we might imagine. In almost all the accounts that we read about Jesus, the gospel writers present us only with a summary. I mean, think about our text that we have right here in Matthew. You can read through that entire text in less than 30 seconds. Well, now, we can't imagine that this encounter took only 30 seconds. No, no. This encounter in Matthew is but a summary of what happened. And the gospel writers present us with a summary and a very accurate summary. And so if Mark and Luke tell us of details of the conversation that we don't find in Matthew, well, it's hardly surprising. I have no doubt that this conversation took a great deal longer than what we read about in our Gospels. And so I have to believe that there was plenty of time to talk about what it meant for Jesus to be good and also then after that to talk about what good deeds were required for anyone to inherit eternal life. And so in conclusion, we might say that this young man realized that Jesus had two things that he didn't have. Jesus had an inherent goodness that the young ruler didn't possess, and Jesus had eternal life, and the ruler said, look, I don't have that either. Now, here's the really important question. How did this man come to the conclusion that he didn't have eternal life? How did he know that? You know, it's an important question to ask because, as we all know, Most people in our culture, when they think of the question at all, will simply assume they've got it. Indeed, I have one survey that said that there are atheists who actually believe that they will live eternally. You know, indeed, what's remarkable is that almost everyone thinks they're going to heaven. And in fact, there are more people that think they're going to heaven than actually believe in heaven. We really do live in a remarkable age. So grateful for those who listen, view, read, and support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. Your encouragement confirms that people are being impacted through the trustworthy teaching of the Bible. Just a couple recent notes we received. I'm so thankful for teaching which emphasizes both the free offer of the gospel and the urgent need for godly living in response to the gospel. And another, I find your teaching is helping me grow in my faith. And for me, you are an essential service. Please keep on teaching the Bible. Thank you for joining us in ministry. This is why you matter. Your partnership ensures that Canadians from all generations, coast to coast, can grow in faith, understand the gospel, and access trustworthy Bible teaching. And don't forget, this month we celebrate our monthly partners and launch our new monthly partner, 1119 Fellowship, which we invite you to join today. For more information, visit backtothebible.ca slash fellowship or call us at 1-800-663-2425. I've made mention of the fact that this rich, articulate, moral, successful, respectful young man did not believe he had eternal life. And as we've already seen from reading the text, Jesus didn't think he had eternal life either. So why? 
How did he know he didn't have eternal life? And the answer is that this man had been studying Scripture for a lifetime. He knew the righteousness of God. He knew that God was the giver of life, and therefore he also knew that God was the giver of eternal life. And he knew that he was aware that the righteousness he found in God, or for that matter, the good he was looking for, was not something he had attained. You know, it's an awareness. It's not wishful thinking. It's not, you know, I'm doing my best, as if any of us have even the foggiest idea of what the best actually entails. You know, of this I'm sure, no one is doing his or her best. Not one. Indeed, this young man does not trade in illusions. He tries to trade in truth. He tries to trade in the good and the righteous. And so Jesus affirms that there is only one who is good, God. And as for you, young man, you already know what you must do. Keep God's commands. Now, at this point, his answer is really surprising. You know, I say it's surprising because at least as I think about this conversation, I would have expected him to say, oh, okay, right. But he doesn't. Instead, he responds with a question. Which ones? Which commands? That is, you can't have meant all of the commands. So please, which are the key commands that are required for eternal life? And that is, which commands lead to the highest good, the excellence about which we've been speaking? And Jesus' answer has fascinated Bible-believing Christians for some time. You know, the Ten Commandments are often thought of as occurring on two tables. The first four commands, that is, the first table of the law, deals with those commands that relate to our relationship with God. And the second table, that is, the last six commands, deal with our relationship to our fellow man. Jesus, in his answer to the man, gives five of the six laws which come exclusively from the second table of the law. And that's almost exactly opposite to what we might have expected. Jesus lists the fifth, the sixth, the seventh, the eighth, and the ninth commandment. The tenth commandment is missing in this list. And if you remember, that's the one command against coveting what our neighbor has. Although the text doesn't tell us why Jesus omitted that command, I have a sneaking suspicion that this man already had everything and more than most that his neighbors had. He might all too easy have crossed that command off his list, but as we're going to see, it's the 10th command which basically centers on our desire to have what others don't that will eventually become the focus of the discussion. But let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. Why does Jesus mention only the second table of the law? And here, I have to admit, we have to guess. See, I can't imagine Jesus saying that the first table of the law is not that important, or it's less important than the second. You know, if anything, it's the first table that is our relationship to God that is central. And Jesus has already said something exactly like that. Only God is good. So why only the second table? I think, and again, I need to preface my remarks by saying my best judgment is that the second table allows one most easily to evaluate one's own behavior. And it will allow the young man to come to just the conclusion he has about himself. You know, we could almost see him doing a mental check-in. Let's see, murder, never done it. Check. Adultery, I'm clear. Check again. Theft, never. False witness, you know, I never have gone in for that kind of a thing. I'm good again. And finally, honoring father and mother. I was raised in a good Jewish home. I've acknowledged my parents' contribution to my life. I honor them highly. Check, 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 and check again. I'm good. And yet inwardly, I have an overwhelming sense that when I stand before the judgment seat of God, I don't feel well. There's something missing. 
Now, I'm going to assume something here. This young man had not heard Jesus preach the Sermon on the Mount. I suspect he wasn't there. If he had been there, he might have heard the answer to his own self-doubt. You see, Jesus there taught that you have heard it said you shall not murder, but I tell you, anyone who is angry with his brother has already murdered him in his heart. Ah, that check mark is gone now. And then anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. Ah, again, another check mark has been removed. And again, you have heard it said, do not swear falsely, but anyone who has gone beyond letting your yes be yes or your no be no, if you've transgressed there, you've also broken that command. Now, had this man known the true intent of the law, it's like a doctor's keen diagnostic tool. It's meant to assess the true nature of our inward spiritual condition. If he had known it, he might have found to his horror there were no boxes to check, none at all. He was guilty of having transgressed all the commands. The law was now exposing him. But that was his problem. He underestimated the commands, or to put it another way, he was underestimating what is good, and he was overestimating himself. See, don't you think that almost all of us do exactly the same thing? You know, I once read that the majority of imprisoned murderers who have acknowledged their crime still feel that basically they're good people. They underestimate what is meant by good, and they overestimate themselves. It turns out that when investigating whether or not we have eternal life, most of us are content with those horribly defective tools of measurement. I mean, what a horrible way to approach our own death and our own eternal prospects, content that everything's just fine because we don't know what we're supposed to look at. But there's something different about this young man. Yeah, he really does foolishly think he's kept the commands, but yet he is aware that he's lacking and he wants to know what that thing is. Now, Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, and that's it. This young man knows he is not, but can't put his finger on where it is. But remember, I've said that Jesus deliberately left off mentioning the 10th command, the command not to envy that which your neighbor has. See, the principle of envy is the fear of never having enough. The principle of envy is that there's something out there that I don't have, and if I had it, finally, I'd be complete. See, the envious person simply can't get himself or herself to trust in the provision of God, that the great God of heaven knows what we need, and he will provide all that we need for a joyful eternity. But the envious person is not content. He or she is on a restless search for ever more and more, always more, always filling his or her life with greed. And so Jesus opens the door to eternal life to this young man and says, look, So you want to be perfect. You want God to accept you. Well then, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and you'll have eternal life. Now, on that point, I think a great many of us have misunderstood Jesus. I mean, we argue that, you know, he doesn't want all of us to sell everything. I mean, that's only asked of this unique situation. I I think this kind of talk misses the point by a great deal. What Jesus is asking this young man to do is to trust him, to trust his father. He's asking him not to keep the commands, but to engage in the risky business of faith. You keep the commands, do you? But you're a legalist. You haven't grasped that the commands need to create in you despair and horror for your own sins so that you would fly to God for mercy. You need mercy. 
You don't need to imagine that you're a good person. I mean, you can't even trust in God for your own wealth. How are you a good person? You think so little of God that if you were actually required to go to him in great need, requesting for your daily bread, if you were to need God for everything, you'd be crushed. I love what Paul said in Philippians 4. He said he's learned the secret of being content when he is abounding, and by abounding, Paul means when he has enough to care for his own needs. But he says he also knows what it is to be content when he is in lack, that is, when he can't meet his needs. Now, how he fares financially or materially, that doesn't affect his joy. Paul has learned in all circumstances that he can find that joy rests in the eternal promises that God has made to him. And since the promises of God are all that matters, the state of his finances cannot rate at the top of the scale, no matter what state they're in. Now then, that's the issue regarding eternal life. The real question, what are you trusting in? This young man was trusting in his internal goodness, although there was a part of his heart that was betraying him. Something was amiss, and he couldn't put his finger on it. But Jesus did. What's wrong is that you're guilty of sin, and you don't trust in God for eternal life. That's the key to eternal life. In order to have eternal life, you have to let go of everything and trust only in God and in his son, Jesus. And if you can't trust in him for everything, how can you trust in him for eternity? That's Christ's question for all of us. Do you trust me for eternal life or are you looking at your own goodness? John, I think it's true to say that Western culture is both me and minute driven. as to say, what's most important is what's happening to me at the moment. And thus our perspective or non-perspective of eternity has little influence on our values or, or even how we live our lives. You know, Ben, I, I think this is not only true in our day, I'm gonna say it's something unique about the man or woman of God. So uh, the gospel gives us the ability uh, to deny ourselves in the present uh, for that which is coming in the, the future. Um, so rather than spending everything we have in the present, we have learned, uh, because we are future-oriented, to make sure that we have enough you know, for the future in this life. But ultimately, we deny ourselves of things that we might have in this life so that we might inherit eternal life. So there's an orientation that's only for the people of God. Everyone else misses it, doesn't understand it. That's great, John. Thanks so much. And remember to join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. To enhance and sustain the Bible teaching ministry of Back to the Bible Canada, and to support your spiritual growth and that of your family members and friends, we've created the 1119 Fellowship Monthly Giving Program. The 1119 Fellowship was inspired by Deuteronomy 11, where we're compelled to love the Lord your God, to serve Him with all your heart and soul, to fix these words in your hearts and minds, tie them as symbols on your hands, bind them on your foreheads, teaching them to your children, talking about them at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. Consider becoming a part of the Back of the Bible Canada 1119 Fellowship today. For more information or to join, visit backtothebible.ca slash fellowship 
or call 1-800-663-2425.